Well, you could be seated. Good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Come on, that's all I'm talking about. Hey, I'm really excited about today. And real quick, the worship was phenomenal. Can we give it up for that team real quick? They worked really hard, worked really hard. As Jason told us, this is family weekend, which is really special. And we do this every year. And what we'll do is we'll have students serve sporadically around our church. You've probably already seen them. We'll have the worship team who is students. And then every year we will ask a couple of seniors who have been uh, faithful to our ministry, but more importantly, faithful to Jesus Christ to come up and preach the word to you guys, which is really special. Uh, And when I think of this, before I introduce them, I always think of this passage, and I said this last year, but it always comes to mind, and that's Jeremiah 1. Uh, The Lord calls Jeremiah to be a prophet. He calls him, okay? And in Jeremiah, in verse 6, this is how he responds to that calling. Then I said, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said, the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. And so here we see the Lord does not put an age requirement on faithfulness to God, on himself. There's not a a certain age we get to serve the Lord, or which we're called. We don't have talents, uh, and then we serve the Lord. God calls us where we're at. And why I love these two gentlemen here is because uh, they don't use their youth as an excuse They radically pursue the Lord. They want to learn his commandments. They want to obey his commandments. And that's really, really special because when I was 18 years old, and maybe many of you, I was far from God. I was an enemy of God. In fact, I hated God. And so what I needed when I was 18 years old as a freshman in college was Caden Meeks. I needed Caden Meeks to show me the love of Christ, to show me what it meant to be a man of God. What I needed when I was 18 years old was Timothy Slater to come alongside me and walk with me and love me and teach me about Jesus Christ. And so it's a privilege that we get to sit under the teaching today uh, because these men are faithful. They're vessels, and God will use them in mighty, mighty, mighty ways. So, Caden, if you want to head up, I'm going to pray for us. Father God, God, thank you for today. God, thank you. You don't require anything of us. God, we don't have to be gifted. We don't have to be talented. We don't have to be a good speaker. We don't have to be influential. God, we have to be faithful. God, when you command something, we have to obey it, Father, and you will use us. God, I pray for these two men right now, uh, God, that the Holy Spirit would lead them. God, that your word would go forth, and God, we know that your word can never come back void, ever. God, we hold on to that promise. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Harvest. It is a privilege to be here in front of all you wonderful people today, to be on the same stage of great warriors for our faith. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be in Matthew 7, 24 through 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Lord, would you use your spirit to speak through me today? Would you let these people hear your word and obey it? Lord, if anything I say cannot be used for your glory, let it go in one ear and out the other. Let us give you all the glory all the time. Amen. This passage is the conclusion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. It was located on a mountain in Galilee where thousands of people had gathered together. Jesus' central message throughout his sermon so far has ultimately been what it truly looks like to live a Christian life. This leads him into the conclusion of his sermon and the parable we will be focused on today, beginning with verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus explained to the people that when you hear his words and obey them, you will be like a wise man. Jesus uses a rock to describe a strong foundation, for it is tough, solid, and this rock is impossible to move. What is this rock, though? This rock is hearing and obeying God's word. When the storms and the rain and the floods, which represent the trials of life, hit the wise man who had been founded on the rock, being Jesus in his word, his house did not fall, but prevailed because he had found, founded his word on Christ. When you obey what Christ is telling you, the foundation you have in him is spiritual and eternal. When Christ and his words are your foundation, there's no need to worry about the future to come, as God has already secured a place for you and saved you from the worst storm to come. However, these storms will come no matter if you are in or apart from Christ. When you're in Christ, these storms will not wreck your foundation. We do not need to just hear these words Jesus has to say, but respond to them with action. For example, in the Ten Commandments, it says not to murder. But Jesus is saying to even be angry at your brother is to commit murder in your heart. Jesus' central message throughout his term has been this. I need to listen to what Jesus has to say. When you obey what Jesus is telling you, there is no need to worry about the future. We do not need to just hear these words. Jesus is telling us to search our hearts and tensions as well as our actions. Faith in Jesus looks like choosing to obey him as stated in James 2. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The, Lord, Lord, the words of the Lord should be the foundation of our lives and should be present for others to see through our works. Hiding this word in our hearts is a command, so that when, keyword being when, as everyone will be tempted and go through trials, but when those trials come, we have to hold on to his words and be able to stand strong in the faith. However, when life's circumstances enter into our lives, and the rain falls, and the flood come, or the winds blow, or tragedy, a breakup, financial burdens, or even being bullied, our faith will be, will be tested, but we can always turn to our foundation in Christ. I find myself most of the time stopping at hearing the word and not actually bringing action to what it says, as it is easy to hear but takes application and discipline to do what the word says. After reading through this text for the first few times, it made me think of a recent example of the Lord working through my life after the tragedy that happened on January 17th. It was devastating to me, and it shook my foundation. However, my house did not fall, as the Lord is my foundation, and I knew I could always count on him for comfort and peace. 
but it made me think deeply about my life and the way I've been living. Because I know I'm a sinner and I deserve an eternity in hell and to be judged by God without mercy. But God sent his son to die on the cross for me. However, it made me think that if I was to die today, what kind of legacy would I leave behind? Has Christ been shown through my fruit and works on this earth? Would they remember me as a man who resembled God? If I was the only Christian on this earth, would they be able to see Christ in me? This has changed the way I'm living, and I have found a greater peace in not worrying if I stick out because I'm following Christ, or trying to fit in to be liked, but to be bold for Christ and to listen to his words and follow what is right. We are not guaranteed another second in this life, so I daily examine myself for ways I can leave the things of this world behind and focus on God's kingdom. Thankfully, I have had the Lord's foundation to walk me through these tough times. Because if not, as we will see in verses 26 through 27, my foundation would have been uprooted and blown away. But when we root ourselves in the Lord, his foundation run deep into the ground and keep us rooted to his words. The next section of the text says this. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Here the text is talking to the people who have not built their house on the rock and instead built it on the sand. Jesus is telling his listeners that all who hear his words but do not obey them are building their lives on the sand. The house in this illustration is your faith and the sand is the foundation you build apart from God. When you put your faith in worldly things such as sports, jobs, or relationships, it causes you to build your life on things that distract you from the real rock who is Jesus. The best way to not build your house in the sand is to follow God's word and create your foundation and identity in him. Many of the people in the crowd grew up hearing the teachings of the Pharisees. The Pharisees themselves claimed to know and love God, but actually desired to earn glory for themselves. They're in constant disobedience to him and are building their lives on the sand. In my life, I find myself very competitive and I love to win. But sometimes when I win, I notice I want to give glory to myself and not give God all the glory. For he is the one that has blessed me with all my abilities, and I fail constantly at giving him all the glory every time. Our lives start to be built on the sand when we don't listen to God's word, or we listen to God's word but never actually put it to action. I found myself recently putting a lot of effort into my sport, and I've noticed it started to bite into my time with the Lord. It is so easy to replace God with things that are not wrong by themselves, but when they become too high of a priority in your life, they become an idol. This has caused me to really slow down and look into areas of my life in which I'm not prioritizing God and correct them. This has caused me to do, help further my relationship with God, and I suggest examining yourself as well. To think about what you spend most of your time on, and is that God? When the wind and the floods come and the sand starts to move beneath the house and what we put our faith in apart from Jesus will fall because the only solid foundation is Jesus. Those who do not have their eternal foundation in Jesus will depart from him when they face the final judgment of the Lord as said earlier in Matthew 7, 23 because they are building their lives on the sand. The Lord uses sand as an example of a weak foundation. For sand is tossed over and over by the waves of the ocean. 
continually getting beat up, then tossed away, then washed back up again. When we do not obey his words, we'll be tossed around by the waves of life, aimlessly with no foundation to grasp onto. When we build ourselves on a foundation that is not solidified in Jesus, we will not only fall, but fall with a great and mighty crash. Many times in my life, I've found my putting my faith into things that are not inherently wrong by themselves, but acting as if they are God in my life. This is a deadly battle we need to fight against, keeping God at the center of our lives and hearts, as Psalm 119.11 says. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Without trusting God, I am merely building my life on something temporary that will fade as soon as the storms make themselves present in my life. When we hear Jesus' teachings but do not obey, we are behaving like we don't need a God in order to live our lives. Every time I begin to think, I don't need God for this, I have failed to prevail in this circumstance. What would be the point of a God if you didn't need him to live a life that truly meant something? What would be without God and word hidden in our hearts, our foundation will crumble. Without a God, there'd be no need for morals or even a purpose to live. When we start to believe something can never fall that is not founded in God, we will see it fall as all on this earth is temporary and will fade. For example, the Egyptians were conquered by the Assyrians, conquered by the Babylonians, who were conquered by the Persians, who were conquered by Greece, who were conquered by the Romans, who were thought to never fall and feared by everyone at the time, but they fell to the Germanic barbarians. No matter how big or powerful someone might think a worldly thing is, it will always fall. If something so large and powerful was to fall, how would I stand a chance without God? For God is the only one that is everlasting. I actually looked up the word for foolish and found a few different synonyms, including dumb, senseless, and insane. So is it not insanity to not want to obey what Christ is saying to us all? I trusted the world. This, deep, this truth has deeply resonated with me. As I had not previously understood the foolishness I had built my life upon, I trusted the world to fulfill what only God can. This brings me to the next part of the text where it says this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the conclusion of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and the people were astonished at his teachings. No one had ever taught as if they were the Son of God like Jesus had. How everyone taught as if they, all the religious teachers and documents taught differently. However, Jesus taught as if he was the one, the Son of God, as if not he was teaching someone else's words, but of his own. This shocked and amazed the crowd. It would be like Pastor Kennan getting up on the stage and teaching his own thoughts and words, as if he authorized them. Like him saying, you have heard it was said, but I say this. This would have either caused the people to think he was crazy, or this guy just might be the Son of God. And in this case, Jesus is the Son of God and had the authority to do so. He is God in the flesh, and these people listened and realized he was of a higher power just from the way he had taught. But this has brought me to think about the fact. We have all this documented in the rest of Jesus' teachings, yet are we astonished at everything he says. But the biggest gift of all that God has given us is his son, Jesus Christ, that he sent on the cross to die for our sins, that God then proceeded to raise three days later. How will we respond to that? 
Will we live with action by showing our faith by works? Let us pray. Father, I pray these words would sit deep in our hearts. May we be a wise people who build our lives on the rock that is Christ. Amen. When I came to faith in eighth grade, a godly man named Luke discipled me, and he grabbed a hold of me and taught me the scriptures, and he taught me about Christ, and by God's grace, the Lord used that discipleship relationship to bring me mature in the faith and closer to him. That really set a fire in my heart for discipleship, and it showed me the seriousness and the joy and the goodness in the Lord's command to make disciples. You know, we intentionally study scripture, we intentionally have a Bible study, but also we do life together. You help me fix my house, I go to your football games, you come over any dinner, I come over any dinner at your place. You know, it's really life on life. Yeah, I'm discipling Tucker, Charlie, Caden, and Garrett because I was discipled. And as simple as that sounds, the discipleship that Luke had on me and my four friends was so impactful, so biblically rooted, so Christ-centered that um, not only do I want to pass that on because it's a command of the Lord, I want to pass that on because it's joy and it's a pleasure and it's really an honor to, to experience coming closer to Christ and then to pass that experience on to others and watch them come closer to Christ as I continue to be discipled and grow closer to Christ in other contexts. One day we were all at church and Jack came to us all individually and asked us if we wanted, if we wanted to be in a discipleship group with him, with him as a leader. And, you know, it's really cool because we all go to the same church, but we all go to different schools as well. So uh, we all have something in common we're all, all able to share in uh, fellowship and community. So what we do is we meet almost every Thursday night and we come together at Jack's house and we talk about how our lives have been and um, just uh, set up the night and then we get into some of our memory verses that we've been learning. And um, we've gotten into some books that we've been reading um, the first one was What is the Gospel? And we finished that a few weeks ago, and now we're reading um, Thoughts for Young Men. So we've been going through those books and just been talking through those. Yeah, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is Jack wants a personal relationship with us. He doesn't want to just come and uh, just teach us the Word, but he wants to teach us the Word and create a friendship together and to learn about our personal lives, what we're going through as a group and individually. And it's just, it's so impactful in my life and to the rest of us I know. It's, uh, it's been a big blessing for me. One thing I appreciate from the group is just the sense of community that we have. Being able to just hold each other accountable um, and just pursue maturity in the faith towards Jesus together. It's been really cool to see and I'm looking forward to us getting closer and just getting to know each other even more to pursue the of all the ways that Christ chose to share and show his good news, the life that he tells us to live because of the truths that he is, he chose to take 12 men and to do life with them and to live with them, to eat, to break bread with them, and to, to share of his days with them. And so um, he commands us to do that also. And that's um, a deceptively powerful strategy that um, is not a surprise because it's clearly laid out in all the New Testament but is um, definitely a surprise when we take God at His word and we realize how fruitful and powerful discipleship really is.
Good morning, Harvest. My name is Timothy Slater, and I'd like to start by just saying that I'm extremely humbled and thankful for being given this opportunity to come and speak today. I understand that this is an opportunity that not many people my age get. I'm just extremely thankful for being given the chance to come to speak. Today, I'll be in Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27, and you can go ahead and turn there. I chose to do this passage because in it we see not only the, the power of Jesus, but his teachings to his, to his disciples. This passage means a lot to me because there have been times in my life where I felt surrounded by various things, and I'd start to get fearful or anxious about how things might turn out. But in this passage, we see Jesus teach against this fear and instead teach faith. So if you would, please stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there rose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Dear God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that you've given us. I pray that you will bless it and use it for your honor and your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. So previous to this, Jesus had been teaching and crowds were following him constantly. He performed miracles like cleansing a leper. He made a paralyzed man walk. And then he healed Peter's mother-in-law. People realized that Jesus had this power to heal, and many were sent to him to be healed. Following this, another crowd gathered around him. And Jesus offered all of them the chance to follow him. But he warned, against, he warned them in saying that it would be very difficult to do so. And in verse 23, we see who it is that actually follows him. It says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So here we see Jesus get into the boat and only his disciples follow him. Even though Jesus had just told everyone that it would be hard, the disciples followed him. This shows that the disciples already ha do, have a, do trust the teachings of Jesus as they, they know what they might be getting themselves into. But why is everyone else fearful? Why did only the disciples come? In verse 24, we see great storm. It says, Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. So a great storm comes, and the boat's getting rocked by the waves. It's important to note that Jesus could have completely prevented this storm if he wanted to. He could have just made their journey the most peaceful journey ever, but he didn't. He allowed the storm to come. He allowed it to come to show who he is and what he truly can do. And during the storm, he's asleep. And this is a test to the disciples' faith. Will they trust the man who they'd been following, who they'd seen perform countless miracles, or would they not have faith in him? When I was in eighth grade, I felt surrounded. There's a lot going on in my life, and I felt far from God. I'd let myself get far from God, and yet at times I'd be feeling like it was God who was getting farther and farther from me. I didn't really understand what was going on, I was living my life apart from God, and yet expecting God to get me out of every one of my problems immediately. This obviously didn't happen. It led me to wondering what my purpose was because it felt as if God had abandoned me. 
Later that year, I went on a mission trip with the church, and on the second or third night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I literally could not breathe. I was terrified. It had been several minutes. It got to the point where it had been several minutes since the last time I'd been able to breathe. I remember just sitting on my bed and accepting the fact that I was about to die. Just then I started to cough and I was able to breathe again. I flew home the next day and went to a doctor to figure out what was going on. And I was thinking about what had happened. I realized that God could have taken me right then and there. He could have chosen for that to be how my life ended, but he didn't. I realized that God wanted me here for a reason. And even if I didn't know exactly what that reason was, I knew that he had a plan. Before this trip, I'd been taking control of my own life, doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, because I didn't have faith that God would do anything with my life. I, like the disciples, didn't have a faith just to trust the man who was in the boat with them, the man who performed countless miracles. But I had to call upon God, which is much like the disciples in verse 25, which says, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. So the disciples are terrified. They're, they believe that they're going to die if Jesus doesn't save them. So they go to him and they wake him up, just begging him to save them. They're in a total panic, and they're essentially in fear for their lives. But Jesus is asleep. He has no worry or no fear. Nothing about him is panicking like his disciples. Why should he panic or fear? He knows who he is, and he knows who his father is. The disciples haven't really grasped who Jesus really is, though. Yes, they've seen him perform miracles, as seen earlier on in the chapter, where he heals people that are sick and people that are paralyzed, but they're still afraid. The disciples have never seen Jesus just command nature to do something, and nature just listen. The disciples might not have had a true faith that Jesus could do something like this, or it could be that they don't know who Jesus really is, or at least not yet. But how does Jesus respond to this? Verse 26, he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus was awoken by their cries for help. And when he woke up, he knew that they were afraid. Jesus isn't bothered by their asking for help, but instead he's bothered because he knows that they are afraid. This fear is from a lack of faith, and this lack of faith is what is upsetting to Jesus. But he doesn't just leave them there. He rose and rebuked the storm, and immediately there was a great calm. The the waves ceased and the wind stopped the very second Jesus commanded them to. The sea obeyed the words of Christ, the wind obeyed the words of Christ, so we too should obey the words of Christ. God is always in control. He controls everything, not just the wind and the sea, but the entire world is under his control. There are times in life where God will answer our prayers in far, far greater ways than we can possibly imagine. Just like the disciples, they might have just expected Jesus to get them out of the storm. But he rose and he made the storm stop. There may also be times, though, where it feels like we're in that storm for a much longer period of time than we expected to be. It may feel like God isn't there with us, but we have to remember that he is not only with us, but he is still in control. Moving on to verse 27. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So after Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples are astonished. This led to them asking who this man was, saying, what sort of man is this? They asked this not only because 
Jesus just calmed a storm, but because they know the Old Testament, they know the prophecies. For instance, Psalms 107, verses 25 through 29 says, For he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to their depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. This passage says that it is the Lord who they cried to. It is the Lord who calmed the storm. The disciples are taken aback because this passage says that it is God, God who will calm the storm. The disciples are in a boat with a man, and they didn't really understand who this guy was up to this point. Yes, they've seen him perform miracles, but they didn't know the, the literal Son of God was with him. They didn't have a true faith in him yet, or a true grasp of him. When they say, who is this? They know that it is only God who could do something like this, which is why they marveled. How could God be a man in the boat with them? Jesus is the Son of God. He's both fully God and he's fully man. The winds, the sea, and the waves obey him. Jesus has power over everything, and he has power over our lives. God is in control no matter how terrifying a situation is. And it may feel like our prayers aren't getting answered, or it may feel like Jesus is asleep as he was in the boat, but he is not ignoring us. God is with us throughout every struggle, every trial, and throughout all persecution. We have to have faith that he is with us and that he will bring us through. We have to rely completely on the power of God. Now, following God, it doesn't take away all of our problems. We live in a world that is completely cursed by sin, and we will face trials and difficulties all of our lives. But no matter what is happening, God is still God. He's the same today as he was yesterday and 2,000 years ago, and he will not change. So when trials come our way, when the wind shakes us and the waves rise above us, God is still there. And he is still with us every step of the way. Dear God, I pray that in every situation, we would have a faith to trust in you and your words. In Jesus' name, amen.